And I I think we're a legal podcast, even though we talk about what we want sometimes. Oh, no, we're a legal podcast. We're a legal podcast. We are a legal podcast, not an illegal podcast. No, as, as opposed to the illegal type, which could also be interesting. Welcome to The Geek in Review, the podcast designed to cover the legal information profession with a slant toward technology and management. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. Well, Greg, I want to start off by saying thanks to all of our listeners of The Geek in Review. Don't forget to click on the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen, as well as rate and review The Geek in Review so that others can find us. So how it works is if you subscribe or like us, it ranks The Geek in Review more highly in terms of search when listeners are looking for legal podcasts. You want others to listen to us, right? Right? Right. Okay, then. Also, we really want to hear from you. Don't be lurkers. Nobody likes lurkers. A few of you have been very brave, thank you, so the rest of you, don't be shy. You can tweet us at at M or at Glambert if you have any comments or suggestions. So Marlene, we had Scott Mazarski stop by my office this week, and I asked him if he would take a few moments to record an interview with us. So I dialed you up on Skype, and we stuck a microphone in his face, and he sat down and talked about his new adventure. Many of the people will remember Scott as president of Bloomberg BNA a few years ago. He is now over at Vannon Capital, which is a litigation finance company. Scott talked to us about how he is reminded of the knowledge management process at large law firms in regards to what he's doing now with litigation finance. It was a very, very interesting conversation, Marlene. It was really, really good. I'm excited for everybody to hear it. Me too. So... Marlene and I decided that we were going to name the first segment of our show Information Inspirations. This is the part where we both discussed some links that we saw throughout the week that caught our attention. Yeah, I like the alliteration and the fact that we're going to mess it up multiple times when we do takes. (laughs) I am sure we will. Maybe we should reach out to Jerry David DeSica and see if he can give us some music for our Information Inspiration segment. (laughs) I think that's a good idea. So Marlene, I know like me, you've probably sat through some of your firm's security meetings where they discuss how you should secure your device, how you should use secure passwords, and all of that. Yes. You glaze over a little bit because it's very high level and detailed. Yes. And I've sat through those, and they're very interesting, but they're really not all that motivating to change. But I will tell you, I listened to a podcast this week from Reply All, and it woke me up. Yeah, you sent it to me, and it was like, that was scary. So after listening to this podcast, I went straight to my computer, I changed all of my passwords, and I finally put my password manager to real use. I mean, I've had it, but I haven't necessarily been using it in the best way. Yes. This really kind of tipped the scales for me. So if you're on the fence on security, I highly recommend that you take an hour and listen to this podcast, and it will set you straight. So the story revolves around a woman who had her Snapchat account hacked, and she was an early adopter, so she had a really cool username of Lizard. One of of the the cool names, right? 
So apparently there's an industry out there online for these names, and they call them OG names. A very lucrative industry, right? Yeah, so they go out and they hack these accounts, and then they resell them online to other people. And they can get something north of $1,500 or more for these names. Yeah, sometimes a lot more. Yeah, just the ease of which they were able to go out and get these accounts was just stunning. It was like 20 minutes. And not only that, but really what surprised me was how little these hackers care about who they are affecting. Yeah, it was it was amazing to me, just, just sort of the, the lack of caring in terms of the fact that they're doing something and they're disrupting somebody's life and, and they're just like, oh, you know, it's just a social media account. I mean, they just did not appreciate the the like the sense of violation that this particular individual felt like it was just like yeah hey this is just business man yeah the hacking is so disruptive and the part that really got to me was the hackers they don't care they don't think twice about you yeah i mean you know she couldn't get into her account and then when she finally got her account back you know was getting all kinds of threatening notes and things and nasty pictures yes yes so and so she doesn't she doesn't even use it anymore. So this was on the Reply All podcast and I will put some links out on the show notes for this. Yeah. And they they had some some useful suggestions too. Some things like I hadn't heard about um like uh pseudo which with pseudo which i think it gives you like you know five burner numbers phone burner numbers that you can use um and what was it a ub key yeah the ub key Mm -hmm. there was also some useful information on how to port your telephone number over to google voice yep yeah yeah, it was just a crazy lots of, lots episode. Lots of interesting stuff. So. Yes, yes, it was. I guess the good news out of it is that I have a super complicated password now. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> good for you. I change mine constantly because I never remember them. So, <laughs> all right, what's up next? How about a news anchor from China who is artificial in many ways? Both he's CG animated and his information is created through AI. How does it sound? I'm glad you asked. Let's take a listen. Hello, everyone. I'm an English artificial intelligence anchor. I this don't is like my very it. first day in Zingwon's agency. Yeah, it's interesting because it's my an voice artificial voice with, the, Zhangda, with an artificial person. With Xinhua, the development <laughs> it's of in the English, but it still has a Chinese accent. innovation and deep integration with the international advanced technologies. I will work tirelessly to keep you informed as texts will be typed into my system uninterrupted. I look forward to bringing you the brand new news experiences. Huh. All right. Well, that was weird, but it did get me to thinking if there was a different way of delivering content to people through this. Yeah. And and I guess certainly a cheaper way of delivering content, right? Uh, I'm just not sure I'm ready for it, though. I'm kind of wondering how the AI in terms of any type of learning works or if this is simply, you know, just voice, just kind of voice activation. Yeah. I'm wondering if it's just reading the news or if the AI is somehow adjusting the way that the reporter is reading the news. It's pretty interesting, but it's still pretty far out there. Not sure I am ready for this. Well, I do want to repoint, we're going back to reply all. They have an automated reader at the end of their podcast. And it's a little weird. I think that one sounds a little more realistic. It almost sounds like a person kind of faking it sometimes, but it's also not sort of standard or rote. I mean, they're they always have something kind of unique to say. Um, and it's generally associated with the podcast, that particular episode. So I always, I think it's, and I also think it's brilliant because they put them at the end 
And it's almost, it's almost like, you know, it's a little hook. It's like, oh, I got to wait till the end. It's, it's like the Easter egg at the end of a movie, right? You got to wait to see what he says. So. All right, Marlene, I had two pieces for our information inspiration segment. So what do you got for us? Well, I was listening to um, Thinking Like a Lawyer, and they had an episode on the rise of the freelance lawyer. And they interviewed two of the founders of uh, Law Clerk. What this is, is is essentially a, a marketplace for freelance lawyers. So you can, you know, if you're a member and there's a way, there's ways to, you know, sign up and be a member, you can post your job and then you will, people will apply, you can vet those. And, you know, if you find people that you like, you can use them over and over and over again. It's not just sort of new people, although that's part of it. They do have, um, you know, people out of law school, but they also have people that have, you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, decided for a lifestyle change. Apparently, they're focusing on veteran spouses is another area I think that there's big opportunities. They also have like retirees. So, you know, if you're looking for people with deep knowledge, you know, who are just kind of want to keep their their keep their finger on the pulse. I mean, that that's that's another option. So I was thinking in terms of KM. So if, you, if you're, you're you want to get people who kind of have a deep knowledge of a particular area of law, you know, work with them in terms of developing technology solutions to, you know, to, to make it more efficient, you know, that might that might be an opportunity as opposed to, you know, hiring people directly. Another thing that they have, which is interesting, is like there's a social aspect to it. So like we were saying before, you know, hey, give us a like, give us reviews. They have that as well, which helps you vet the people that you want. So the last thing was interesting. It's not just people kind of doing a side hustle or people that are out of a job, you can actually make some real money. Like if you yourself are knowledgeable and efficient, you can repurpose your work, you can actually make a pretty, pretty decent amount of money. So I thought it, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I listened to the same interview. And I love listening to Ellie and Joe on their podcast. Although I think Ellie was sick on this episode. Yeah, Ellie was sick. This was just Joe. Well, this reminded me a lot of the style of which I have hired research staff over the past few years in that the difference being we're looking for more generic um, types of researchers where they're looking for more content specialists and those with specific skills and experiences. Yep. You're reviewed upon the work that you do and that review is put right next to your profile. People actually put out specific work that can be done. They'll say, hey, I've got this brief. I need you to brief on this particular topic. I'm paying $450. Who's willing to take it? And then they review you. They look at your writing samples. Mm -hmm. You're hired. You know, but the nice thing about this is that it, and it really kind of goes back to KM, is that you can repurpose a right. lot of your experience over and over again if you are an expert in that field. Well, that wraps up our information inspiration segment. It's the Barry White in information inspiration. <laughs> Let's listen to Scott now. <laughs> That's a good idea. Here's Scott Mazarski. Well, one of the benefits of dropping by my office is that sometimes you're going to be asked if you'll do a quick interview with the Geek and Review podcast. So I have Scott Mazarski, and he's agreed to talk with us. And uh, so I dialed up Marlene to sit in on the conversation as well. Um, thanks for dropping in and talking to us. 
Thanks for having me, and really a pleasant surprise to see Marlene on the screen here, too. It's yeah. uh, like virtual reality. Looking right over my shoulder here. Scott, most of the audience knows you from your work at uh, Bloomberg Law, where you were president for three years. You've jumped into a new area of the legal, uh, the legal industry and are now the regional managing director for North America at Vannon Capital. Vannon's a litigation finance company. First of all, can you fill in, uh, can you fill in the blanks a little bit on what litigation finance is? Uh, let's, let's pretend like I know nothing about it. Because I, cause I don't. <laughs> so can you tell us why you, you jumped into this field? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Why did I jump into it? I, I think it's a fascinating field. And for me personally, if you look at my background, I, I grew up as a lawyer. I practiced for 15 years. The last seven of those years when I was a general counsel at UBM, which was a large publicly traded media group, I also had M&A and strategy, which gave me a lot of exposure to the finance side of things, which I found really interesting. And I learned an awful lot. The la- And I really enjoyed doing M&A, but I was curious about the business side and ultimately moved to the business side. I had a couple of business roles at UBM and then went to Bloomberg, where I was over the last five years, the last two and a half, three being at the Bloomberg Law side. What I really like about business is taking something and being able to scale it up and to build something that hopefully is sustainable and that you can develop people and allow them to grow and that will, it sounds a little cliche, but that will outlive you and your career and you can look back, God willing, we all get to retire someday, you can look back and sort of say, hey, I really accomplished a lot and I've built something that's sustainable. What I love about this opportunity is Vannon is the second largest litigation funder globally outside the U.S., but in the U.S. we're not as large. We really went into the market, came into the market in earnest about a year and a half ago. So it's an opportunity to scale up a business. So it blends the legal, the finance, and the business aspect of it. Okay. I I didn't realize that they were still kind of scaling up in in the U.S. Yeah. So we, like I said, we're probably, there's only about three funders out there in a market that's becoming more and more crowded. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes that are truly global. And we're one of the three, and we're really big. We're based in London. We're big in Australia. We're in Sydney and Melbourne. We're in Paris. We're in Bonn, Singapore, and D.C. and New York. So we've got a nice global footprint and spread. But we relate to America, so that's part of the opportunity. And the last thing I'd say, sorry to monopolize the that's podcast, right, but this is what happens when you hit me at the last second. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and I'm clearly introverted. Um, no, I, what I was going to say is, you know, a lot of your listeners are the community that we've all spent a lot of time with, which is the legal tech community. And, and one of the things that really excites me about legal tech and why I've stayed heavily involved with legal tech, even after joining Vannon. I've been going to legal tech breakfast in New York that I think you both know Ari Kaplan. He runs one every month. I've met with a number of legal tech companies just to stay in touch and frankly to help people. And there's been some turnover in my old shop. So I've actually introduced some of my former colleagues to other roles too, because I think they're talented and they play really well in legal tech. And there's a lot of similarities Mm -hmm. between legal tech and litigation finance. Legal tech is disrupting a market, making it more efficient, making it more transparent, mm-hmm. and hopefully letting people serve their clients better and run their businesses better. And it's doing that with technology, data, and analytics. Legal finance is doing that, but with business models. It's helping law firms change the way they approach business. It's helping, law, it's helping clients change the way that they approach litigation as an asset. Can you give us like just a couple of sentences for those that don't understand what litigation finance is, what it is? Absolutely. Remember, I'm 10 weeks into the job, so I know a little bit more than enough to be dangerous. All right. But no, uh, so I'll give you, I'll give you 
two minutes on it. Okay. The industry actually started probably here in the States with one or two of the investment banks back in the day in the early 90s, sort of flirting with litigation as an asset. And the proposition was if somebody financed litigation for, that was credible and that had a real likelihood of winning, of being successful, mm-hmm. for littler companies that couldn't afford to litigate against the big guys, they would put the money out there. It would be non-recourse. So if, if the claimant lost, the funder would lose all its money. The claimant wouldn't lose any money. It just wouldn't succeed in its claim. But if, it, if the claimant won, it would share the winnings with the funder. Gotcha. So the funder was putting a lot of money on the table. And actually, the industry gained a lot of traction after that in Australia and in the UK. Why was that? Because there's no contingency arrangements allowed there. Gotcha. So law firms, this was a way of dealing with things that you normally would have taken as contingency. It's gained a lot of traction here in the States over the last five to 10 years for a variety of reasons. It started with access to justice. Somebody wants to sue Google, Apple, Microsoft, whoever else, they have a credible claim, they're small, they they can't afford to pay $7 million, $10 million of fees over a five-year span. And the big guys know that and they can bleed them out. Mm -hmm. Funders get involved, it's not an issue anymore. What's fascinating is the models evolved. So now more and more Fortune 500 companies are leveraging litigation funding. Why? You're a Fortune 500 company, you have a claim. Let's assume for now that you have a claim. It's not defense. We can talk about defense in a couple of minutes. Right. You have a claim. All your legal fees are going to hit your P&L. That means they hit your earnings. That's money that you could be, if a funder was paying for everything and you didn't have to pay it, you could bank the profit. You could invest in your people or in your product. And because a lot of large companies are broken down by division, 10 million bucks, even a very large company over a few years matters. Mm -hmm. If you win and you're a large company, it doesn't hit your P&L. It's below the line. What happens is it's a one-off. Your shareholders don't really give you any credit for it because unless you're cash flow poor, it's not gonna make much of a difference. So the proposition, if I'm an in-house counsel is, and a CFO at a company, wait a minute, I can, have more profit on my P&L, I can eliminate all my risk on losing because I'm not paying for it, and I'm going to get still a very large chunk of the upside. It's a pretty good proposition for me. Sounds like the American way to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to steal that one. Yeah. Scott, you know, essentially what I'm hearing is, is that there's investment in these cases for the potential of a return. So you know, when, when Greg told me that you were coming in and, you know, I looked into this a little bit, I was assuming immediately that, okay, this is like money ball for litigation to determine, you know, the likeliness of, of the win, the amount of risk, and there's probably a lot of analytics involved in that. Is that true? How do you go about making those judgments? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's a great question because and I'm living, the reason I say that is I'm living it. This industry, this is going to shock you and your listeners, there's a lot of lawyers in this industry, and therefore, shockingly, they, they initially weren't as likely or as prone to embrace technology and data and analytics. <laughs> I'm stunned. I know. I'm stunned. You're like Inspector Renault in Casablanca. <laughs> I'm shocked to find his gambling uh. here. You're winning, sir, right? <laughs> um, but there's clearly been a trend over the last couple of years where more and more funders in the industry and the attorneys who are working at the funders in the industry are embracing data analytics and technology. And well, they're doing it in two ways. The first way is absolutely what you just said. It's money ball with respect to analyzing an investment. Because if we're going to make 
a significant investment in a case, we want to know it has a pretty good chance of winning. So what do we do? We can we can do judicial benchmarking using some of the platforms out there, including including Bloomberg, where I was before I took this role. But there are others. We all know about Lex Machina. We all know about Westlaw Next. We all know about other stuff, kicking around legal nation, some really interesting stuff out there. So the first area is about assessing a case, figuring out whether you think it has a good chance of winning. And also, frankly, the interesting thing about the funders is we don't always come in at the beginning of a case. We might come in when a case is on appeal. So somebody got a preliminary injunction, it's up for a circuit court, it's being appealed. The claimant needs a funder to step in and finance the rest of it moving forward. We might get, in at the, get involved in the judgment stage. How likely are we going to be able to enforce a judgment against somebody? Somebody wants a hedge. We might get involved, this happened recently to us, a large AMLA 25 firm that shall remain nameless came to us and said, look, we took a case on full contingency. We're over $11 million in fees. We're getting a tremendous amount of internal pressure to either sell off part of it or, or get all the money and sell off almost all of our upside. So we'd love to try to figure out a business deal with you. In each of those situations, we are looking at data. We're looking at the strength of the case. Now, we have human intervention. We have a, former lawyers all coming from great firms, all with a really good experience, who are analyzing the cases. And our process, once we commit to going forward with a case, we go through confirmatory diligence. So we put out a term sheet. We've done a lot of work up front, which is a big differentiator for us, because what that means is we're very unlikely to discover anything in confirmatory diligence that contradicts what we found, which means we're less likely than, than most to either retrade, or de retrade a deal or pull away from a deal because we know a lot going in. We'll often then go out to outside counsel and say, give us your sense, not a formal legal opinion, but your sense, are we more likely to win this than to lose it? So that's part of our process too. The other side of Moneyball, Marlene, is kind of what I preached at Bloomberg Law around business development. If I can zone in and see who are the counsel, the firms with the most experience in an area, in the relevant geography, how often have they won or lost, how often have they appeared before a judge, how many similar cases have they done, I have a much better chance of understanding whether a case I'm getting is something I should go, or, or an opportunity to get is something I should go after, which firms should my managing directors be spending their time with? Because the interesting thing for me in this role that I've learned early on, I came in, I thought a lot of this came from companies through our website or contacting us directly. Some of it does, but the majority comes from large law firms. Who, who, who come in and say, we either want, uh, we have a good case, but our client can't afford us. Or we have a case, we want to take it a partial contingency, but we're willing to partner with you. So it's really, so at that point, when I'm working with our managing directors on the business development side, the conversation is, where should we be spending our time? What should we be prioritizing? And one of the best ways to determine that is to dive in using some of the legal tech platforms and look at the analytics and look at, you know, Dig deep on the firms. I mean, you look at the database that Leopard has, right? That's able to give you some really good insights into how firms are constituted and where the litigators sit and what cities are they in and all that good stuff. Smart. So you could almost, at the same time, kind of assess the risk of, of different firms in terms of, you know, which ones to get involved with in doing this process as, as well as whether the actual 
case that you're investigating is worth investing in? Well, that was my pitch at uh, when I was at Bloomberg Law. That was what we were saying uh-huh. to in-house groups. We were saying, look, there's a lot of great law firms out there, right? My Kind of my standard line when I speak at things is, you know, lawyers hate to hear it, but they're a commodity. There's a lot of great lawyers out there. So you have to find out, figure out a way to differentiate yourself. And the best way to do it is with data and analytics. Use them to your advantage. Because if you dig it enough, you're going to find areas where you have more depth than others or where at least there's a much, much smaller pool with that depth. So what we, what I always said to in-house groups was if you take the time to crunch the data and you're doing a software deal in Shanghai for $100 million, you can pretty easily figure out who's best place to represent you. If you're Microsoft or Exxon, since we're sitting in Texas, and you get sued in a district court in a jurisdiction that you're not familiar with, you can go into numerous legal tech platforms and figure out who are the counsels spending the most time there and who've had the most success there. Same thing applies to legal financers, right? When we look at a case and somebody says, well, we're working with this law firm, one of the things we want to vet is, is that law firm experienced in the area? Do we feel that they will adequately and competently represent their clients and that they'll be a strong advocate for their clients? So we absolutely look at that. And just one other follow-up. I mean, you're talking about these tools. These are all tools that and, and applications that you're using or on the market. Firms could actually do this themselves in terms of evaluating the risk of a case and figuring out what the numbers should be, right? Absolutely. I mean, Greg's smiling at me because I'm is smiling. Is anybody but, doing that? Yeah, I think, I think some of, look, and, and this is not at all to stroke either one of your egos or to stroke some of the other thought leaders out in the community. Greg who, loves that. Go who, ahead. No, but you know, some of the others in the community, I mean, who clearly are front of the curve when it comes to getting their firms to test different ways of differentiating themselves and being successful, trying to make change management happen in an industry where it's very, very, very difficult. There are firms that are absolutely doing it, and there are in-house groups. You know, one of my favorite platforms out there, and this is going to sound like a plug, but I just have been really impressed as a former general counsel, it was a GC for seven years, is Bodhala. And there's other platforms like it, like Pursuit. So what they do is they actually give visibility to in-house groups, and they have a number of Fortune 500 companies, in-house groups about what they're being billed in real time. They're, you're able to benchmark about against what that law firm bills other clients on similar stuff and what other firms bill for similar stuff. So you can get a real sense of, am I doing this in an economic way? And then what they're also able to do through the billing data is determine who's getting a lot of experience in different areas. So it helps to announce counsel say, oh, who does this type of work? And you could dig in that way too. So it is being used on both sides, Marlene. I think it's going to gain more and more traction. That was my experience at, at Bloomberg. That's the experience I've had so far at Fannin, meeting with firms, more and more adoption. I think people get that in order to compete in a world that's become more and more competitive, where there's more and more pressure, you have to adopt technology, you have to dive in with data and analytics, and maybe even prepackaged data and analytics. So when you get a docket alert that says your client who's represented out of another office at your firm got sued in your jurisdiction, and you have prepackaged data to be able to show to the client that you have a lot of depth in the area and you'd be a good choice for them to work with without a hard sell, that's a pretty powerful message. And I think we'll see that more and more. Firms using dashboards like Kulik and Tableau, ingesting docket data, 
using that to ping partners, get cross-pollination going in a firm, and then leading with data and analytics to prove their case. Well, I was perusing the website today and something popped out at me. I know about litigation finance a little bit, but one of the things that popped out at me was you also have something called Finance for Insolvency Practitioners. I, I think that's what we call up on our 20th floor of the bankruptcy group, right? Yes, it is. How, how does that work? Yeah, well, think about it. There's, a, there's actually was very recently a big case in Quebec involving, I think it was DigiKey or someone or, or, or another. It was a gaming case, uh, computer gaming, not, not casino. And the court held that they were fine with litigation finance. It was giving access to justice. And in the case of a bankruptcy, it actually was the only recourse that the creditors really had to ever see any funds. Because if an insolvent company has claims against others and the trustee has no money to work with, what do they do? So a legal finance company can stick it, can step in, a legal financer can step in and help the bankrupt, the insolvent company and the trustee ultimately realize some of the money that they're due. Also think about clawbacks, right? You get into bankruptcy, insolvency scenarios. One of the things, I, I was never a bankruptcy practitioner. I was an M&A guy, but when I was in-house, we invested poorly in one investment that I was sat on a board of a company that was going insolvent. So I lived this. And some companies, when they know they're coming up insolvency, might prioritize certain debts because of either relationships or otherwise that they really shouldn't be prioritizing. It, may, it might be completely innocent, or maybe it's not. But under bankruptcy law, you have the ability to claw that stuff back if it wasn't appropriate. Well, somebody has to fund you going after the companies that were paid in order to be able to claw that money back. And that's where a finance company steps in. Well, Scott, I can tell that you're really excited about this new endeavor. It just really comes off. I'm, I'm excited. You know, just, just listen to you. You've always been in the media field. Uh, you've been at Bloomberg BNA. You were at PR Newswire. I mean, I think I know the answer here. How, uh, how are you enjoying this transition? Yeah, look, I, I, I'm enthusiastic, and, and full disclosure, I have a head cold during this, so I'm not doing a bad brand, no impression for the listeners, but, but even through that, the enthusiasm's there. I'm really enjoying it. I, I think I've gotten lucky. I've, I've joined, I'm, I'm working with a number of colleagues around the globe. I was in London three weeks ago and met with a number of them finally in person, uh, and I've been really impressed with the people I'm working with, and it's very sophisticated work. I'm using my brain a lot. What did I love about media? What I loved about media was I was never bored. Constant change, constant transformation. Print was dying. North America wasn't going to grow, so UBM, where I was, we bought up a bunch of trade shows and digital assets around the world. Well, that was fascinating. But then you had to deal with different markets, and you had to deal with, actually, you bought up a bunch of, of digital stuff, but it was impression-based advertising, display advertising, and within a couple of years, people really didn't value that as much. So you had to look for new models there. And then people said, well, there's a good link with data. So actually, media companies should be buying research companies or data companies. And they'll have that you know, third prong along with print and with digital, maybe fourth prong if they had events, to offer. ALM's doing some interesting stuff there. Bill Carter, who leads it, has turned them towards data. Uh, and they're doing some interesting stuff with um, Andrew Nesbitt, who came over, I think, from TR. Media always fascinated me and still does because it's constantly changing and you're never bored. And you get to come up with solutions and to test new things. And by the way, to fail once in a while, right. but to learn from it. Same exact thing with legal finance. It's innovative. It is 
models are going to change, the, the industry, because the asset class has outperformed basically any other asset class out there. Everybody's jumping in. University endowments, hedge funds, pension funds. Most of them are passive investing in funds, PE players, but there's more funders too. The U.S. market is so big and the global market is so big that we're not nearly at the point of saturation. But like any other industry, we're going to have to evolve. And whether it's three years from now or five years from now, we're going to have to use more and more different models. Even now, we grew up as a single case funder, had a lot of success with it over the last 10-ish years, eight years. But we're pivoting, and we are looking at portfolio funding. We're looking at defense funding, which is fascinating, right? Because you're not really getting a verdict. What are you going to get? Well, maybe you're going to get a percentage of a revenue stream going forward. Maybe you're going to get equity in a company, or maybe it'll be tied to a few claims, and you're effectively pay, you know, paying for that with your winnings on the, on the claims. So it's just constant evolution, and I love that. Um, the last thing I'll say is, I know Marlon wanted to say something I was about to. This is my plug for the KM world. So I actually published an article a few weeks ago for uh, Above the Law that broke down similarities and patterns between legal tech and litigation finance. And it was a bit of a self-mocking because over the years I've used the term pattern recognition way too much to the point that when I say it in meetings to some of my colleagues for the millionth time, they just start rolling their eyes and want to start violently throwing up. But the reality is, one of my biggest surprises in coming into this industry is that the KM teams at firms are actually still very relevant on the legal litigation finance side. Because in a lot of firms, the professional support lawyers sit under KM. The professional support lawyers are often charged with, for the litigation groups or for others at the firms, compiling the relevant information on anything innovative and bringing it to other parts of the firm. So one of my colleagues went for a meeting at a M100 firm in London with a London office and said to the person that they were meeting with, oh, Scott Bazarski's just joined us. He knows these people at the firm. One of them was the head of KM. And she said, oh, that's my boss. So it was like, it was just a real surprise, uh, which is great. Now I've, I've heard that from four or five other KM leaders oh yeah, the professional support lawyers run up to us and they do play a part in this. So it's interesting. The small world of big law. That's right. That's right. (laughs) So Scott, you know, it's fascinating listening to you in terms of some of the different types of investment and how you sort of envision this branching out. How do you see this changing actually how litigation works or do you see it changing how litigation works? and broader implications for for legal, you know, particularly in the U.S. Yeah, so I I think it'll change it in in a few ways. The first is I think more and more firms are seeing litigation as an asset. So the first reaction that firms have is, we'll just bet on ourselves. We'll take more and more as contingency. The problem is that the way firms are structured and the way firms need to generate cash and the way that firms deal with their business model, it makes it difficult for them to have a number of 100% contingency cases going on. That said, I think firms are recognizing that there's a lot of upside here. So I think we'll see firms taking more on partial contingency, whether that's discounting 25% on their fees and therefore taking a X percent of the winnings if a case happens to win. I think it's, it's really important that in any of these situations, the claimant is still walking away with at least 50% of what they would have won 
and hopefully more. Because once you have a law firm involved and a funder involved, you have to be that much more sensitive to, to that. So the first thing is, I think the business model, Marlene, I think you'll see more firms willing to take a bit more risk by discounting a bit, but still staying profitable on the matter in order to have upside. That's the first area. I think from a business development perspective, what we're seeing is more firms going into clients and saying, by the way, we have a relationship with a funder or a few funders. And if for any reason you want us to make an introduction, we can do that for you. Have to be very careful about, and we are, about duty of loyalty, attorney-client privilege. Once we're involved in a matter, once we commit, we're very low maintenance. We want to know what's going on from a budget perspective because we funded it and we've made projections. But we do not dictate litigation strategy. We do not dictate anything around settlement. We trust our clients and trust our firms. It's part of the investment calculus when we do the initial analysis. But I think, you know, so you'll see the firms more and more wanting to find ways to develop business while working with the funders. Now, there's other ways that plays out, Marlene. One of the things is portfolio fundings, where funders are making commitments to a firm that are pretty large to fund four or five cases or to put together a fund dedicated to that firm that basically securitizes a number of cases, some that exist, some that will come in the future, against each other. And the firms will use that almost as working capital in some ways. Now, if you're a large firm, it's you're not cash flow poor, but at the same time, it also could be used as a hedge for firms that have gone deep on contingency matters and feel they've gone too deep and they want to take some off the table or do, or do something else there. So I think you'll see that. The other area is we see, and, and other funders have done this and we've looked at it, helping firms finance new practice groups and helping spinoffs because they need capital. Now, once again, have to be very sensitive to ethics rules, have to be very careful about non-lawyers splitting fees with lawyers. We don't want, you know, we want to be very sensitive to that because, you know, you clearly want to comply with all relevant regulations. You don't want to give the industry a block. Law, law firms have have ethics restrictions and, and, you know, you have to, you have to work, you have to work with them. Exactly. Sure. So those are some of the areas. I mean, I think, you know, and, and I think also overall, I think it, what it will mean is while firms are wired to take as little risk as possible, I think we'll see firms beginning to take a little bit more risk, so long as the economic support that they could still remain profitable, even taking that risk. Makes sense. Makes sense to me. Scott Mazarski, thanks for stopping by and talking with us. It's been very enjoyable. This, is, this has been fascinating, Scott. Thanks so much. Well, yeah, thank you again for having me. It's great to see both of you. This was a really pleasant surprise, so I'm glad we, re- well, I'm glad we got to do it. That's what happens when you step in my office. <laughs> I know. This is gonna be, every time I come to Houston, this is going to be my, my thing to do. Well, it was great that Scott agreed to talk with us today. And thanks, Marlene, for jumping on Skype uh, at the last minute to yes, talk with us. Yes, yes. And I'm so glad that, that I had the opportunity. Um, <laughs> I admit, this this one was really fascinating, and, and I could have kept asking questions. Um, and, and I know we even had to cut some <laughs> that, that we did talk about. I know Scott and I kept looking at our watches because I had promised to take him out for a drink after the interview. But you kept asking questions. But wait, one more. But wait, one more. Yeah, we were like, come on, Marlene. We got drinks with our names on them. (laughs) Yeah, it was very interesting how he was able to tie things like knowledge management over to the litigation financing 
and also how he was able to adapt from his experience in the legal media realm and move that over into this uh, litigation finance sector. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I was thinking about this, you know, he was talking about how it's it's very early on here in the US, but that it's probably going to pick up. And just after, you know, his explanations, there's there's so many new ways of making money. <laughs> and of course, you know, us being in a capitalist society, people are, are, are and, and industries and sectors are, are going to pick up on that quickly. As Sam the Eagle from the Muppets would say, it's the American way. <laughs> Exactly right. Exactly right. And, you know, after the interview was concluded, we talked a little bit about access to justice opportunities. And Scott had mentioned wrongful incarceration, which would have a monetary end result. But I was also thinking that this sort of evaluation could be purchased or donated to places like the Southern Poverty Law Center or defense attorneys or even individuals who are incarcerated and wanted to appeal to you know, determine how likely an appeal win is. And taking it a step further, if money was needed to be raised for defense, this type of information could be linked to a Kickstarter campaign to fund that. So you'd basically see the likelihood of success. And you know, maybe that could be used as a way to get additional donations. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a number of things on the access to justice front that could be used in this area. Yeah, I just feel this is sort of a, a really new area that can be really explored. And, and, you know, we just need to be creative and apply some creative solutions to it. Amen to that. Well, that wraps up another show. I'd like to thank Scott Mazarski for dropping by and agreeing to talk with us today. And also thanks to Jerry David DeSica for his original music. And hey, and yeah, thank you, Jerry. And hey, folks, how did you like the music? That's something you can tweet to us. Yeah, go out there and listen to Jerry's uh, Spotify account or his iTunes account. Yes, absolutely. All right, thank you, Marlene. Thank you, Greg. Bye. Stones held up by